This episode is brought to you by Knotgrass History, creators of Homeschool History. Regardless of where your child goes to school, Homeschool History helps you find kid-friendly books, videos, games, websites, and virtual field trips related to history, geography, and government. Whether you want to learn more about the topics covered in the past in the curious, or explore something completely different, Homeschool History will save you time and enhance learning for your child. Access this web-based app on any device, bookmark resources in your own custom groups, and share your ratings and reviews with other parents. Start searching today at homeschoolhistory.com. Well, if it ain't... Insert name here. Welcome back to The Past and the Curious. Me, I'm Mick Sullivan. You, you're... Insert name here. And together, we're about to do this. So I know that we have a lot of Canadian listeners, and I've been wanting to find a really great story to celebrate my northern neighbors. So I went on down to the library, I checked out some books, and I settled on a lady who I think you're going to really, really like. Her name is Fanny Rosenfeld, and she was a whole lot of fun to research. Now for the other story, I only looked a few miles away from my home. Perhaps Kentucky's greatest gift to the world, even more so than fried chicken or college basketball, is a man known as the Mouth of the South, the Louisville Lip, or the greatest of all time. And that man is Muhammad Ali. I hope you enjoy learning about both of these people, Fanny and Muhammad, as well as some naked running races and more. All of this in this episode of The Past and the Curious. Let's get started! Pup tent bloomers are not an ideal outfit for running. Now, they might sound unfamiliar to our ears today, but these puffed-up pantaloons once graced the bottom halves and calves of plenty of young women in the early 1900s. They're called pup tent bloomers because, as pants, they're so big that they kind of look like those pup tents that soldiers would cover themselves in while sleeping underneath the stars. Even if you don't think they look like pup tents, and I'll be the first to admit that they don't exactly, in the 1990s we actually would have called these things hammer pants. But they probably used about as much fabric as a pup tent did. They were big, billowy, and could balloon with air. So not good athletic wear for someone trying to run fast. They'd catch the wind like a sail. Nevertheless, there stood young Bobby Rosenfeld at the starting line of a foot race that she hadn't even planned on running. She was being cheered on by all of her softball teammates, wearing her wind-grabbiest pup tent bloomers. See, she was at a citywide picnic to play in a softball game, but knowing how fast she was on the base paths, her teammates convinced her to enter a 100-meter dash that just happened to be taking place nearby. She said yes without much thought, and the next thing she knew, the starting pistol was fired. 12.1 seconds later, Bobby crossed the finish line before anyone else. Seemingly out of nowhere, a man came running up to her, asking questions like, Where did you come from? Who are you? Have you run in a competition before? And when he asked her if she knew who she had beaten, Bobby shrugged and said no. He told her that she had beaten the Canadian champion, Rosa Gross. Bobby thought that was pretty cool. Then he asked, Do you know how fast your time was? Bobby again said no. He told her it was 12.1 seconds, the Canadian record. Now Bobby Rosenfeld could add track and field to the list of sports that she dominated. 
Bobby was born in 1904 to a Jewish family in the Russian Empire. Today, her homeland is part of Ukraine, and at the time, there was terrible prejudice against Jewish people in this and other areas of Eastern Europe. To escape the pogroms or violent riots and mobs targeting Jewish people, the young family sailed across the Atlantic Ocean and settled in Ontario, Canada. Known as Fanny during the first part of her life, she contracted, fought, and conquered smallpox on the boat ride to Canada. It was the first of many victories that she would have. She soon grew into an incredibly powerful young woman. One person jokingly described her by saying, Rosenfeld was not a good swimmer. The point this person was making is that swimming was literally the only thing she wasn't really, really, really good at. And to be fair, she probably was pretty good at it. She just wasn't better than every other person she met. But when she played all the other stuff, she left everyone in the dust. She played hockey against her brother's friends, many of whom later claimed she could have easily played forward in the professional NHL. She played baseball and softball, basketball and more. It didn't matter who she was playing, she usually won. She wasn't just a sports star though, as one of the first young women in her part of Canada to adopt the new shortcut hairstyle known as the Bob, she was something of a fashion icon too. In fact, the name Bobby, which she would use for most of her life, was a nickname given to her because of the 1920s hairdo. Before long, there wasn't much left for Bobby to do. She'd whooped everybody in just about everything and had earned a reputation as one of the best athletes in Canada. Now, the biggest sports stage in the world at the time was, of course, the Olympics. But in the early 1920s, it didn't look like she would get a shot at international gold. The modern Olympics were first held in 1896 in Athens, Greece. The founder was a man from France named Pierre de Coubertin. Pierre had several passions. One was history. He was fascinated by ancient Greece and was particularly fond of the ritualistic athletic competitions they held, called the Olympics. A famous ancient Greek man named Aristotle supposed that the Olympic festivals, held in honor of Zeus, began around 776 AD. For the early years of the celebration, the events only involved running. Only men competed, and it is believed that many of those men were <clears throat> naked. Naked? Yep, naked. Less wind drag than pup tent bloomers, I suppose. De Coubertin's other passion was for physical education. He was like the original PE teacher. At the 1889 World's Fair held in his hometown of Paris, France, he held a huge conference on physical education. People there wanted to see the Eiffel Tower and hear Thomas Edison's new phonograph or see Barnum and Bailey's circus, but Pierre wanted to talk to them about stuff like jumping jacks and push-ups and PE curriculum. <sighs> oh, hey, hey, how many jumping jacks can you do? Uh, hey, do you have any strong opinions on stopwatches? Because I sure do. Will you sit on my back while I do push-ups? No, no, I told you no. Please, leave me alone. I'm gonna bring back the Olympics, you'll see. Pierre was able to apply all of that passion and energy about his two loviest loves to his lifelong goal of reviving the Greek celebration and competition known as the Olympics. When a group of countries finally gathered in Athens, Greece to open the modern Olympics for the first time in 1896, he was the main reason it happened at all and he would oversee the Olympics for the next quarter of a century. But here's the thing about Pierre. He didn't think women should compete in the Olympics. And since he was in charge, well, 
They couldn't. People like Bobby couldn't get a shot at the biggest stage in the world. He'd argue that women didn't compete back in ancient Greece, so they shouldn't now. But that's a flawed view of history, if you ask me. And I'm sure plenty of people push back against this with arguments like, well, they also ran all their races naked, and I don't see a field full of naked dudes from all over the globe out there competing for gold now, do I? Pierre actually made a statement on the matter. Here's what he said. I am personally against the participation of women in public competitions, which does not mean that they should not participate in sports, just not in public. At the Olympic Games, their primary role should be like the ancient tournaments, the crowning of the male victors with laurels. Dude, for real? For, for, for real? For real, real? Like, that's what you're going to say? That's how you're going to defend your position here, Pierre? Lame. When he announced his retirement in 1926, the Olympic Committee wasted no time moving on from that narrow-minded view. Enough of that nonsense, they signaled. In the 1928 Olympic competition, women would compete for the very first time. Canada assembled a small but mighty team of six women to compete in the track and field events. The first choice was obvious, Bobby Rosenfeld. Amsterdam was an incredible place, and Bobby and the team were thrilled to be there. And they told this to everyone in the letters that they would send back home. At the time, Amsterdam placed mailboxes on the back of public transportation trolley cars that carried people around the city. Pretty brilliant. The young women made a game of chasing after the moving cars to drop their letters in the post. If nothing else, it was an interesting way for the runners to practice. When the games officially began, Bobby was scheduled for several events, but when she made the finals for the 100-meter dash, this conflicted with her discus competition, so she chose to run the race instead. And it was dramatic. Six women on the starting line. On your marks, get set. No, I didn't say go yet. Two women started running before the starting pistol. False start, everyone back to the line. Okay, here we go, this will be good. On your marks, get set. No! One of those same women started her stride again before the women were released. Two false starts meant disqualification, so she was gone. And now there were five women on the line. Okay, on your marks, get set. Oh, for heaven's sake, what's the deal here, ladies? The other woman who made a false start the first time, she did it again. Now she was also disqualified. So now there were only four women on the starting line, and one of them was Bobby Rosenfeld. She was ready to run already. Of course, at this rate, she might have just got a medal by being the only person left to run after a few more disqualifications, but that was not the case. The race would go on. Okay, let's make this one count. On your marks, get set, go! Yeah, finally, all right, good work, everybody. Go, 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 go. Moments later, Bobby and an American runner broke the ribbon at the finish line at the same time, and the judges couldn't decide who won. There was a dispute, and the judge, who happened to be Canadian, recused himself. He didn't want to look like he was pulling for Canada unfairly. The American judge did not follow his lead, so guess who got the gold medal? Yeah, the American. As disappointed as Bobby might have been, she still had more chances at gold. The four-woman relay race was a place for Bobby to shine. As the lead runner and one of the fastest women on the planet, she gave the Canadians a lead that they would never relinquish. 
With relative ease, they cruised to gold. Going home with a gold medal and a silver medal was remarkable, and her individual point total was, in fact, higher than any other woman's point total in the Olympics, making her the MVP of sorts. But what Canadian sports fans remember most about her was when she joined the 800-meter race at the last minute. Her teammate, Jean Thompson, had injured herself in training, and despite still planning to run the race, the coach thought it might be a good idea to have Bobby enter and run along with her to help push her on and let her know that she wasn't alone. Jean's spirits were bolstered, and she made a good run, pushing from fourth place to second around the halfway point. But around this same time, a runner from Japan bumped into her, and the shock caused her to fall behind. Bobby could see this from behind her in the pack, and she caught up to Jean, steadied her nerve, and encouraged her, telling that she would finish the race and she would finish strong. Jean took it to heart and focused. She would finish fourth, and Bobby would finish fifth. Most people there knew Bobby could have easily turned on the Jets and finished somewhere in the top three, which would have hung another medal around her proud neck but she was there to support her teammate. And that's why she pushed her teammate to finish strong. And that's why Bobby finished behind her. It was a remarkable display of camaraderie and teamwork. It goes without saying that Bobby was beloved. Relatively young, she was struck with severe arthritis, which brought her athletic career to a halt. Still, countless Canadians would get to know her through her sports writing columns in the newspaper, which she carried on for decades. She was named Canada's most important woman athlete of the first half of the 1900s, and her name and face have been memorialized on street signs, athletic fields, postage stamps, and more. Bobby Rosenfeld was much more than an Olympic champion. She was an idol to Canadians, and for good reason. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Okay, for You Have 30 Seconds this month, we're keeping it in Canada. Take it away, Hartley. Hi, my name is Hartley. I'm from Victoria, BC. Wayne Gretzky is a retired pro hockey player born in 1961 in Brantford, Ontario. He played most of his hockey career with the Edmonton Oilers and the Los Angeles Kings. He scored more goals, assists, and points than anyone else in NHL history. 
He won dozens of awards and four Stanley Cups. He currently holds 61 hockey records. Excellent work, Hartley. Thank you for sending that. I know that you sent that one in a long time ago, actually March of 2020. Oh, what a month. So thanks for your patience and thank you for sending that in. And to anyone else out there, if there's a story you want to tell about someone, something, or some time, and you can do it in 30 seconds, I want to hear it. Send it my way. Hello at thepastandthecurious.com. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It's quiz time, and here's question number one. In the 1936 Olympics, which happened in Berlin, Jesse Owens won four gold medals in seven days, which was an incredible feat, to say the least. But the year before that, at the Big Ten Collegiate Championship, he did something even more incredible. He broke a whole bunch of world records in just 45 minutes. How many world records did he break? Sometimes you're just feeling it. And on May 25th, 1935, Jesse Owens was definitely feeling it. At the track and field competition, he broke five world records and tied a sixth one in three quarters of an hour. And he did it all with an injury too. People have called it the greatest 45 minutes in sports. Heads up, I think this may show up as a bigger story in a future episode. All right, here's question number two. In 1952, a Czechoslovakian man named Emil Zatopek, whose nickname was the Czech locomotive, won gold in an Olympic event that he entered at the last moment and had never actually competed in. What was it? Emil had already won gold in the 5,000 meter and 10,000 meter running competitions when he decided to enter the full marathon. He had never competed in a marathon before, but figured, how hard can it be? To be fair, it is hard. It just wasn't that hard for him. He ran alongside the world record holder for half the marathon and then eventually turned to the man to ask how he thought things were going. When the opponent said that it seemed like a slow marathon, Emil turned on the jets and left everyone in the dust, bringing home his third gold of the Helsinki Olympics. And here is your third and final question. Since the modern Olympics began in 1896, only five countries have competed in every single summer Olympics. Others have had to sit out or withdrew for various reasons. So can you guess who the five Olympic perfect attendance countries are? These countries never missed a beat. Greece, Great Britain, France, Switzerland, and Australia. They have all competed in every Summer Olympics since 1896. I'm not saying that Muhammad Ali was a superhero. He was human, we know that much for sure. But if he was anything, he was larger than life. And if he was anything else beyond that, well, he was an incredible athlete. And if he was anything, anything else, he was a man with a unique way with words and an unquenchable thirst to be the best. Some have called him the most important American athlete of the last century, and that might be true. And you've got to admit, even if he wasn't a superhero, he did have a lot of superhero qualities. Really big muscles? Check. 
Concerned with taking care of people who needed help and being kind to the vulnerable? Check. Fancy silk outfit? Double check. Cool origin story? Super double check. And in the scope of superheroes, isn't a good origin story the most crucial part? Oh, but wait, back to those fancy silk clothes? At the height of his fame, he wore an elaborate robe before most boxing matches. But he still went out there and fought in what were basically underwear. I mean, there's a section in the underwear department called boxer shorts, right? So, how many superheroes can you think of who wore their underwear on the outside? Quite a few, right? So maybe I'm starting to change my mind on this superhero status. And he did appear in a comic book with Superman. So, hmm... This is going to need more thought, I guess. Anyway, Muhammad Ali was given the name Cassius Clay Jr. at birth. His parents lived in Louisville, Kentucky, and his mom worked when the family needed a little extra income. But honestly, taking care of Cassius and his little brother was more than enough work for any one person. Once, when he was a teeny tiny toddler of 18 months, the boxer-to-be swung his arms in excitement, as toddlers often do. His fist made contact with his mom's tooth, and like many a future opponent, his mom's tooth got knocked wobbly. The dentist would finish the job and remove it from her mouth entirely. Maybe boxing was his destiny. His father, Cassius Clay Sr., was named after a man from Kentucky who had once held people in slavery. But after introspection and a powerful awakening, that Cassius Clay became such a fierce warrior for abolition that he had to survive two assassination attempts. But this Cassius Clay of Louisville in the 1950s was a sign painter who created most of the signs hanging on businesses around town. He was also a man who loved to sing and dance. His son once called him the fanciest dancer in Louisville. Okay, so that was the introduction. Here's the origin story. In 1954, Cassius Clay Jr., the future Muhammad Ali, was 12 years old, and he and his friend headed to a neighborhood fair. Cassius parked his pride and joy, a shiny red Schwinn bicycle, and headed off to enjoy some fun for a few hours. But on his return, all of the fun, all of the joy, Everything good immediately drained from his body. It was replaced with a stinging sadness and anger. Someone had stolen his bike. His most prized possession. Vacillating between tears and fist-pumping anger, he caught the attention of a nearby police officer. When Cassius told the cop that he was going to find whoever stole it and whoop him, well, Officer Joe Martin encouraged him to think twice. Fighting wasn't the best solution, but also, did he know anything about fighting anyway? Turns out the answer was no. Officer Joe Martin, on the other hand, spent his off hours as a boxing trainer in the nearby Columbia gym. So he invited the boy to the gym if he decided he'd like to channel some of that anger and energy. It took a while, but the boy soon showed up and learned to box. And not too long after that, Joe Martin was surprised to find that Cassius Clay Jr. had an uncanny ability in the ring. All of the sadness and anger that filled him up when that beautiful red bike got stolen was replaced with pride, power, happiness, and confidence when he had found his passion for pugilism. 
Soon, boxing became the only thing that Cassius Clay thought about. Everything he did was in service of his goal, which was to become the greatest boxer in the world, and he told everyone he met that this was his plan. There's a lot to be said for that. If you tell everyone you meet you're going to be the greatest, they're going to remember that. And then they're going to wonder why when you're not. It was a way to hold himself accountable. Cassius didn't ride the bus to school with his friends. Instead, he'd run, racing the bus to school while making funny faces at the kids on board, who would typically return the favor. He was particular about everything he ate and drank. Never one to drink soda, his classmates remembered him usually drinking a bottle of water with crushed garlic added, you know, to keep his blood pressure down. They probably remembered the stink more than the drink. One evening after a talent show at the high school, Cassius offered to run a young lady home. She assumed that he meant run her home in a car. He didn't have one of those. Instead, she walked while he jogged beside her. Occasionally, he'd run to the end of the block where he'd turn around, run back to her, and then keep jogging beside her some more. All of this hard work, dedication, and absolute commitment to being the best was unusual to his classmates, but it had a dramatic impact in the ring. Soon, he was one of the best amateur boxers in America, and at the age of 18, an incredible thing happened. He qualified for the 1960 Olympics. While he was there, he made friends with a young woman named Wilma Rudolph, who was regarded as one of the greatest athletes of the era. The young woman from Tennessee dominated the running competitions and won three gold medals. Cassius Clay, for his part, only had a chance to win one medal, but he shocked the world when he won gold. For the rest of his time at the Olympic Village in Rome, he wouldn't take the medal off. It dangled from his neck when he ate breakfast. It bounced on his proud chest when he joked with fellow athletes and he even slept with it. In order to do that, he learned to stay sleeping on his back, otherwise the prize would poke him in his chest and wake him from his dreams and much needed beauty rest. He always liked to point out how beautiful he was. Wilma and her three gold medals visited Louisville when Cassius Clay was the honoree of a hometown parade in celebration of his own Olympic gold and new professional boxing career. He yelled to everyone repeatedly from the back of the convertible that he was the greatest. Then he pointed at an embarrassed Wilma and yelled even louder to the people that she was the greatest too. No one could call him a liar. That Cadillac cruising down Broadway was carrying two of the greatest athletes of all time. But once the hoopla of the celebration faded into memory, the young man found that not much had changed for him in his hometown. Out one day with a friend and hungry for a burger and a milkshake, they stopped into a diner where they were told by staff that they would not serve black patrons. Clay had an Olympic medal, the key to the city, a parade in his honor, and he still couldn't get a burger in a restaurant because of the color of his skin. At some point around this time, Cassius Clay lost his treasured gold medal, and no one is sure what happened to it. Some say he just lost it. Others say he walked halfway across the bridge over the Ohio River and threw it into the deep muddy water in disgust at the way his country had treated him. In any case, it's gone, and no one has seen it since. The first three years of his professional career, Cassius Clay went undefeated, constantly bringing attention to himself with his silk boxers, fancy footwork, fists of fury, and mouth that was always talking about his power, grace, and beauty. 
His victories earned him the right to box Sonny Liston for the heavyweight championship. It was 1964 and he was 22 years old. After seven rounds of flying like a butterfly and stinging like a bee, Cassius Clay won, becoming the new heavyweight champion of the world. Within days, he told that same world that he had converted to the Islamic faith and that his name was no longer Cassius Clay. Now, he was Muhammad Ali, and he was easily one of the most famous people in the world. His Muslim faith was a major part of his decision not to join the army. Like many young men of the time, he was drafted to fight for the American army in the Vietnam War, but he refused. In his heart and in his mind, he believed it was the wrong thing to do, and he said no. In return, his heavyweight crown was taken and he was suspended from professional boxing. On top of that, he was sentenced to jail and only avoided that because he won court battles all the way up to the American Supreme Court, fighting for what he believed in. He probably would have rather been fighting in the ring, but fighting for his principles was just as important. It wasn't until the 1970s that he would be able to box again, and in dramatic fashion, he would win two more heavyweight championships, earning without any objection the nickname The Greatest. He told those kids at school that someday he would be the greatest, and now he was. He was the closest thing to a superhero that most people would ever meet. Outside of boxing, Muhammad Ali did a lot. He was a spoken word artist. He was a regular on TV. He even tried to get the Beatles to reunite. But his greatest legacy was as a humanitarian. It's believed that through his charity work, Ali helped feed 22 million people afflicted by hunger all across the globe. He fought for Native American rights, African American rights, and was a major force for education and financially supported many historic black colleges and universities. That's just scratching the surface. In 1996, he was chosen to light the Olympic flame at the Atlanta Olympics. He was also given a gold medal to replace the one that he had lost, or thrown into the river, back in the 1960s. When he died in 2016, his hometown of Louisville shut down completely, and nearly everyone stood on the side of the road to pay their respects. I watched from a rooftop as the hearse carrying him took him for one final drive along the river. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before, and I doubt I ever will again. He meant an awful lot to a lot of people, and the quote that seemed to come out of that day was one of his best. He said, Service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on earth. It's a good thing to keep in mind all the time. Working on this episode got me thinking about a friend that I had named Jerry Everett. Jerry's not around anymore. He was quite a bit older than me and was a favorite person to talk with at work. He was an incredible spirit, but also a remarkable father and grandfather, a musician and singer, and all-around cool dude. When he was young, he knew Muhammad Ali, then Cassius Clay. Jerry remembered him chasing the school bus, playing around the neighborhood. He even remembered that same red bike that was the pivotal point in Muhammad's origin story. Jerry would tell me that he wasn't a superhero. He's just a man, he'd say. And Jerry was right. A lot of people disagreed with many of the things that Muhammad Ali said or did. But he always spoke from his heart, and he always fought injustice, and he always stood up for what he believed. He was also always unfailingly kind and sweet to kids, and he always took care of people who needed help. And that's a superhero in my book. It's the kind of superhero that any of us can be. 
underwear on the outside or not. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed listening to that. I enjoyed putting it together. One note that I want you to keep in mind with this episode and literally every episode that I put together, none of these people are perfect, so don't ever think that. But they are all human and they are all interesting and they all did do something remarkable. These two people, especially so. Okay, so I have people to thank for Patreon. I'm so grateful to them for supporting the show and showing how they support the show. This really helps me keep going. Um, and, uh, you know, consider it or not. Really, the best thing that you can do is just tell somebody. Use your mouth. That's what your mouth is for. Telling people about the past and the curious, really. You can eat with it, too, if you want. But really, it's to tell people about the show. I don't know if you knew that. Anyway, uh, okay, Betty and Willie in Columbus, Betty Indiana, which is not far away. Howdy up there in Columbus. I'm down here in Louisville. How are you doing, Betty and Willie? Thank you for your support. Now, this is a little bit further away. All the way to Alaska. Carol in Alaska, how are you? Carol. Thank you very much. I'm so yes. glad that you're up there and out there listening. And last but not least, I need to say hello to a brother and sister. Now, the brother, Emerson... Turning eight in August. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday, Emerson! Happy birthday to you. you! I'm, you know, I'm from the city where the Happy Birthday song was written. I don't know if you knew that. We did an episode about it, so you could listen to that on your birthday. And I also want to say hello and thanks to your sister Ada. Ada, how are you? I'm so glad that you're out there and listening as well. If you ever have a suggestion for a show, you all should reach out and say so. You know, love to hear what you have to say. That goes for all of yous. Thank you all very much. My name is Mick Sullivan. This has been the Past and the Curious. We'll talk to you in August. <laughs>